1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TateCast. My name is Davis Matic. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Ilan Vinokorov from Scout University and Evie Hoops. You can find his work there. We had a very interesting conversation about scouting the NBA. It's always been something that I wanted to talk about on the podcast, but really was waiting for the best possible guest to do so. I think scouting NBA Is a lot different than scouting baseball players or NFL players. And we've had NFL scouts on the show, pro baseball players on the show, uh, people inside the organizations of baseball players on the show. And this really gets into the nuts and bolts of scouting NBA players, projecting NBA players. And then, of course, we do talk about the 2019 NBA draft class, Zion, Ja, RJ Barrett, uh, Carson Edwards, you know, some of the some of the undrafted free agents, and also the draft process, you know, how much the agents have the ability to to influence the draft process. Of course, if you want to support the show, a rating and review on iTunes is always appreciated, and you can join the Patreon for the show to support the show and get bonus episodes on patreon.com slash takecast. We are also sponsored by dailyroto.com. You can get 10% off of the best projections, analysis, and tools in the industry using the promo code Rory on dailyroto.com. And we are also sponsored by rotoexperts.com. Get ready for your fantasy football draft with the best projections, rankings, and expert content anywhere in the industry with our NFL 365 package, exclusively led by yours truly, Davis Matic, and you can get 10% off of that package using the promo code Matic, M-A-T-T-E-K. Now let's get into the show. All right, everyone would like to welcome to the show Vina Vinokurov from Scout University. This is a a discussion I'm really looking forward to have because we we've never really had someone deep in the NBA scouting game on the show. Alon just returned from Las Vegas Summer League and is uh, is trying to recover. How you doing, buddy?
0: I'm good. You know, t- taking the recovery day at time, trying to get back to a normal schedule where you're not having dinner at eleven o'clock at night.
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a grind. One of my a couple of my buddies from high school actually went. And I was I was gonna I was gonna be there this year until I realized that I had to uh, that I had to move this week. We we could have been doing this podcast in person. Did you have a good time out there?
0: Yeah, it's always fun. Um, I, I'm a big believer that you really only need like three nights, three days in Vegas, and anything more is just overkill, um, especially in July when it's like 110 degrees outside. It's it's always a good time, but like like the second day you're already like okay I'm I'm getting sick of this place, and by the third day you want like nothing.
1: Yeah, I mean by the time you get back from Vegas, like third day you just want to sleep for a full like you want like a good fourteen hours really is appropriate. The the last time I was in Vegas I stayed at the Wynn, and uh, I didn't I did not leave the hotel for three days. Like you you just don't have to, and you just you lose all sense of time, and the the oxygen is so recycled. it, it really is an American experience, unlike anything else.
0: Yeah, it's it's fun to go around there with like people from Europe who just like to them it's it's just such a weird place. Um, but I, I'm always I'm always fascinated, kind of walking around with somebody who's never been there before and just like seeing what kind of freaks them out about Vegas. But it's it's always fun, you know. I'll go every single year until I'm not in this business anymore because uh, it's just like it's mandatory at this point. You have to be at summer league.
1: It is. I mean, that, it's, the, it's the big networking event in basketball for a lot of the people who are not, uh, you know, strictly employed by the teams. But uh, before we get into the 2019 draft class, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, how you found basketball and decided not only that you wanted to scout it, but that you did want to found uh, Scout University. What really made you fall in love with the game of
0: you know, I think for most people that get into hoops, they get into it at a younger age. Their their dad shows them how to play. Their older brother, you know, introduces them to the game, something. Um, I didn't really get into hoops until I was in, like, I think seventh or eighth grade. I had switched to high school, I switched to different middle school, didn't really know anybody, um, heard people talking about fantasy basketball. It was a way to meet people. I got involved. Uh, I just went to, like, NBA.com and studied, like, every single player, memorized like the players, their stats, uh, and just kind of like got really into it. Um, And then from there, I just got more and more kind of obsessed with basketball. Uh, It just became like a bigger part of my life. Um, I always enjoyed playing, although I wasn't very good. I'm I'm not really like a natural athlete, especially for somebody that like wasn't introduced to sports at a young age. Um, But I just love being involved. I started coaching while I was, I think, a senior in high school. When I was in college, I had coached uh, at my high school and, and I was still involved. And I started kind of interning in a sc- at a scouting company when I was 19 years old uh, after my first year of college. So uh, I was always looking for a way to be involved in basketball, whether it was coaching, playing, scouting, anything. Um, and the second I kind of got my foot in the door, I wasn't going to kind of get out. So I just stayed involved all throughout college was offered a uh, full-time job and I graduated to be the number two at Clib Hoops. And then uh, when my boss at the time, Jim Klibanoff, left to run the Denver Nuggets scouting department, I started my own company in 2013. So
1: tell people a little bit about what Scout University is and kind of what your, what your overall goal is with the company.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Scout U is a a smaller company within EV Hoops. EV Hoops began in 2013. We scout college basketball players, international players, anybody that's draft eligible with an eye towards the NBA draft, and we work with NBA teams. Scout U is something that we started a couple years ago, and Scout U is really uh, a way for me to connect with people that want to get involved in scouting, teach them how to scout, teach them the process. Uh, I feel that a lot of people go to college, and especially the sport management program, with an eye towards working for an NBA team. And unfortunately, I don't think the sport management program is preparing people to work in basketball operations or baseball operations or football operations. Right. It's, it's helping people that want to maybe go into coaching, maybe, that want to maybe go into sports marketing, want to work at a, at a college program's athletic department. If you're trying to go into that path, then I could see how the sport management program might help you. Um, but anybody that wants to work in sports in general needs to go work. They need to find some place where they could cut their teeth, develop their craft, work for free, just find a way in. Uh, But if you really want to work in scouting, there's nobody that's going to teach you that unless you get involved with a company or a team. You're not going to learn that in school. And so I looked at that and thought, I got lucky, I got a chance to learn it while I was going to college because I got a chance to intern. But for people that want to go into scouting, want to go into basketball operations, and they're going into sport management program, they're not going to learn what they need to know there. And I feel like if I can develop an opportunity for people to learn about that, will work on their craft, do it from home, do it in a way where it's not breaking their budget like college typically does, but it kind of fits everybody's schedule, then I think that's something that is a, a market that it hasn't really been tapped into and is a way where people can learn and see, hey, this might be for me. And now let me figure out what my path is going to be. How am I going to d- differentiate myself other people that want to work in basketball
1: well I mean regardless of the league it's it is just difficult to make the connections and then also prove that you are capable of doing the job. Like I I have more experience and knowledge of what it's like in the NFL to like to become a scout and like those are not easy jobs to get and I would assume it's pretty similar inside of basketball. Like either you have to know the right people or you had to have been a player or involved in like college basketball. So I assume for like, a, like a, a super outsider, it has to be sort of difficult to like prove that you have the qualifications to work for a team, especially in the player development side, as opposed to like the business side.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And I guess what I would just say to people, and this isn't to, um, I guess, be a downer on anybody, but like if you're going to school for sport management, and you want to graduate college and the first thing a team sees on your resume is sport management, you are in a pile just completely, you know, up to someone's head of sport management resumes. The question is going to be what will be on your resume that sticks out? And, you know, going to Scout U, it's not going to be the only thing that sticks out. It can't be the reason why you're getting a job. It's going just going to help you develop your craft, give you some more confidence. Maybe you go to a game, you meet somebody, and you feel more, you know, confident talking about players. But like, what else are you going to have in your resume that stands out? Maybe it's actually your major. Maybe it's like you, you, met, you majored in stat, you majored in behavioral economics, you majored in psychology, you majored in programming, like something that will actually be different than everybody else in that pile. And I think that would be the thing I tell people is find something that's going to make you different, it's going to make you valuable, that somebody will look at it and say, hey, we don't have anybody like this in our operations department. And if it's just sport management, there's nothing different about that. That's what everybody's doing. So find something that makes you different and that's the best way you can try to differentiate yourself from everybody else.
1: So if I wanted to take the 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 101 course, so what what would attending the the Scout University be like? Sort of, you know, what what's in the curriculum? Like what 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 am I really kind of specifically learning in the classes?
0: Well, so there's a lot of different options right now for people to I guess learn about scouting or front office and you know, anything. There's just tons of different programs. What's different about ours is it's a five-week course. It's not just like a one- or two-day thing. It's not a three-day thing. Um, We're not bringing in like a barrage of speakers. It's really, we're going to teach you how to take notes. We're going to teach you what to look for. We're going to teach you how to polish up your note-taking ability. We're going to teach you how to then turn that into a report. We're going to show you what to look for in a game, what to look for outside the game, how to open up your critical thinking when it comes to scouting. Um, You know, it's really kind of half lecture-based and half film-based. Every class is three hours, 90 minutes of lecture, 90 minutes of film. And at the end, we have a debate where we kind of make a big board amongst the class and everything is built to that. You can't really argue about players until you know how to, like, what to look for and how to take notes. So all that stuff kind of gives you the ammunition to now go into a debate in the week five of the class and start making a big board with the class. And that's something I, I find people that take the class really enjoy it. They really like, you know, kind of arguing for players, debating, trying to find a way to break ties. And they've earned it at that point because they've, they've sat there. They've really learned how to take notes. They've learned what to do with those notes, what they build towards, and how to kind of have the evidence to convince somebody, hey, I like this player more than that player. And that's what it's all about, really, because you could just say, hey, you know, I really like Justice Winslow. I really like Josh Jackson. I really like Jason Tatum. But you don't have a way to relay what you like about them more than the other player then what are you really accomplishing. And to us, that's really the, what it's all about. Critical thinking, debating, note-taking, really having that evidence to be confident to go to bat for some money.
1: So something that's pretty interesting about what you just said is how evidence-based the scouting is. So this is a phenomenon that's like pretty common in like European soccer, which is actually the sport that I know the most about scouting in because so much of that stuff is more public. And there's this sort of this phenomenon when it comes to like soccer scouting where there are just some guys who understand it they just they're able to see the game they're able to see what a player is going to be able to do how they're going to be able to develop and it's there like there's not like scouting school in Europe kind of the same way that there is in like American baseball or with scout u or with the way that NFL scouts are developed how much do you think of scouting is sort of intuitive versus something that can be taught or learned? Like, do you think some people are just inherently better at seeing the game of basketball than others?
0: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like that's a debate I used to have all the time with my former boss, uh, Jim Klibanoff. And we used to kind of talk about like, okay, this person has it, but can you teach somebody to develop it if they don't have it right away? And we always used to go back and forth. Um, It's definitely intuitive. I think there's a certain level you can't really get past no matter how much you're taught. You either kind of have it or you don't, and that does cert- certainly limit your upside. Um, but in general, you can be as intuitive about it as you want and have a, you know, as good of a gift as anybody else, but that doesn't really convince somebody that you know what you're talking about. Like, if you say to somebody, hey, I'm really good at scouting, trust me, how much weight does that hold? there's only so many people that can kind of get away with that. And usually those are people that probably played in the NBA. Yeah. Not, and, not everyone is Jerry
1: West,
0: right? It, it, that's a great name. I mean, you're right. Not everybody's Jerry West and everybody is like a Chauncey Billups who people think knows the game really well and could theoretically just get a front office job, you know, without having the grind his way up to the top through a front office, like people that didn't play the sport. Um, and that's well-earned, you know, like Jerry West has earned that. Chauncey Billups has earned that to an extent. Brent Barry has earned that to an extent. Um, but, the people that have not played in the league, if not, you know, played at a high level internationally, they have to prove it in other ways, whether that's, you know, working at, you know, some sort of a company and working their way up, showcasing their network, showcasing their ability to have an analytical mind, being creative, thinking of the box. And even that might not be enough. Um, but I do think it's a very intuitive thing. It's, it's certainly almost an art you could say. Um, and I think the longer you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think that there's a limit to some people and there's a ceiling and, They can't get past it no matter how good, you know, their education is in this field. Um, And then you either have it or you don't to some level.
1: So my sense from the outside is that kind of the way NBA front offices and even, and even like NBA's like third party agencies that, that do contract work, which I believe that you and your organization has done for some NBA teams like consulting is that the NBA as a league is a little bit more open to people that have not played the game professionally that didn't, you know, come up in the NBA environment. You know, they didn't play college basketball or whatever. Whereas basically If you want to be an NFL scout, you had to have played the game or you had to have coached the game at some level. Have you found that to be true, that the NBA is sort of more open to people that did not come from a basketball environment?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's probably somewhere between football and baseball. Uh, Like football, definitely, I think you need some sort of a background. Baseball, you're seeing people just have an Ivy League education, and that's enough.
1: stat guys can go and work for a team without having ever picked up a bat.
0: Right. And and hey, it's working. You know, the baseball's in this you know, sabermetrics movement where you see teams like the Houston Astros, the Pittsburgh Pirates that are really leaning into that. And it's giving them a competitive advantage and helping them outperform, you know, their overall some of their parts and talent ability. Uh, but I think basketball somewhere in between, you know, there's definitely that analytical side of it. And you're seeing people get jobs for that. Um, but at the end of the day, you still, you still see guys who played the league, you know, play in the league, like, uh, Sean Marks, the GM of the, the Brooklyn Nets doing a great job playing NBA. It doesn't mean you have to be as good of a, as a Chauncey Billups or a Jerry West, but I do think that that helps these guys, I think, get started a little bit ahead and, uh, get a higher position than somebody who has to start, at the, you know, complete bottom, like complete basketball operations, assistant entry-level internship. Um, it does give them a head start. And that's earned, and I think, uh, but I do think it's somewhere between football and baseball in terms of where you know where that value lies.
1: Another thing that I think is sort of interesting is the NBA, the NBA analytics revolution. Really, to me, it seems like it's about how teams play. So it's okay. We need to, We need to, three guard lineups. We need to be shooting a lot of threes. We need to be dunking. No more long twos. Whereas the the NFL analytics community, a lot of the statistic work is. I mean, a lot of it is about the play calling, but a lot of it is evaluating college players heading to the NFL and trying to unlock the secrets from the data as to what is going to translate a good college wide receiver to a good NFL wide receiver, you know, finding the one. To, what kind of analytics are in place in, in evaluating, you know, high school and college players? Is there, is there even good metrics that exist to, to do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think teams have a lot more information than is publicly available. There's a lot of stat companies that are popping up that are offering advanced analytics to the college level. Certainly the NBA is ahead of college in that sense in terms of the statistics available to them. But I think, you know, they look at certain thresholds. They look at players that meet certain efficiency levels, productivity levels. And they, you know, I know teams that will look at certain markers and say, if the X is this and Y is that and Z is this, and this guy's not going to be a good NBA. Um, and I think for them, that helps them narrow the field. Um, you know, I've spoken to teams where they'll say, based on our board, you know, we don't even think that there's 45 NBA players in this draft. And I'm sure some of those names are just chopped off merely based off of analytical qualifiers. Um, I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. I certainly don't think it's as heavily influenced as baseball is, but it's a part of it, and I think it's only going to become a bigger part of it as we gain more access to data that we don't know even exists. One of the
1: big ones that I've heard talked about from people kind of around the NBA is like block and steal rates. I found True. that there's been like a, a really good correlation between guys who either if they have really good block and steal rates. That's generally a good translation for athleticism. And then also for like understanding of the game, just like where to be defensively seeing the court well or on the converse. I remember some of this stuff with like, uh, like Jimmer for dead and some of these uh, like the stretch fours that are really bad defensively, there's just been a lot of talk of like, if you can't get blocks and steals in college, you're just not going to be athletic enough to play in the NBA.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly a stat that people lean into a lot. The stock rate, stealing blocks combined. Um, it's a very popular stat right now, especially for wing players and centers. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, like, I think a lot of people are using that to, almost make the like, first-round decisions, like push players up or down or cross players off altogether. But you look at a guy like DeAndre Hunter, who didn't really average a ton of steals and blocks in Virginia, was drafted very high, we'll ultimately see how much that impacted him. You can make a case that that was the Virginia pack line defense impacting how much he could be disruptive versus a guy like Matisse Thibel, who played in the 2-3 zone at Washington, which was essentially a relative of the Syracuse zone, and he was able to fly all over the court, Rowan to other people's responsibility areas, really just kind of gamble a lot. And there were questions whether or not that would translate. You see him in Summer League. He he posts the same type of steal and block numbers. Now, DeAndre Hunter, I think we're going to look at ultimately, well, what does the league prioritize? Does it prioritize a guy that's going to generate deflections? Does it prioritize a guy that's switchable? Or does it prioritize a guy that's a stopper, which almost feels like a dying breed? We'll see. I mean, I think the emphasis on steal and blocks is less – what the league is emphasizing and more trying to find, you know, some sort of a stat that can suggest where players might struggle athletically, especially on defensive end. I do think it's a popular stat. And I think right now people are using it heavily to kind of push guys up or down their board.
1: How much does the NBA combine weigh into your evaluations? This is like another thing that's super big in football. You know, you'll hear scouts talk about, the 40-yard dash time, like that's kind of like the most important number and some of the agility testing as well is really important. But I I don't know if I've ever heard, you know, like an NBA personality really talk about what a scout or or what a player did at the combine in terms of their ability to translate to NBA success.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually spoken to people from the football side and they've echoed my same belief in that by the time the combine rolls around, you've seen most of these players enough. It's more maybe to look at the smaller school guys that you haven't gotten a good enough feel for and see if their athleticism translates to the same level that the the big power conference kids do. Um, But I personally don't see a reason to walk into the combine and walk away with a grossly different opinion of a player than I had walked. You've seen these guys enough. You've seen them a ton. Unless it's somebody that didn't play college like like a Darius Baisley or somebody that had an injury short in the season, but often those guys don't even get a chance to go to the combine because they're still not healthy. Um, I don't see a big reason to let it impact you. I think, you know, for me, you've spent enough time watching them, especially guys who have been in school for multiple years. The stuff you're going to see in the Combine is really just an opportunity to, I think, put you into a trap of falling for something that you didn't really see on
1: tape. How do you handle guys like Darius Baisley who the Thunder drafted, or uh, the even the international guys? Like, what is scouting one of the international guys like? I'm assuming you probably don't get to see those guys in person, maybe just at like the Nike Hoop Summit or something. What is it like scouting those guys versus NCAA players?
0: Well, scouting the international players to me is easier than like scouting a Darius Basley, who you don't get to see play college, you don't get to see play internationally. You're just going off of his high school tape and. I think scouting high school tape is, is tricky. You know, you know these guys, you get a feel for them, but ultimately, what's it, how's it going to translate? And I obviously selfishly enjoy being able to see these guys in college because you can kind of see, okay, like, you know, a Czech Diallo struggling a little bit more in college, highly ranked high school kid. Cliff Alexander, kind of similar story. It, it lets the cream kind of rise to the top. Whereas internationally, I don't think it's as difficult. I mean, you get a chance to watch these kids in FIBA events over the summer coming up in U16s and U17s. U18s, and then ultimately when they get a chance hopefully to play with their men's team and they're not stuck on like a junior team front like on a low-level Barcelona team, you have a chance to kind of see what their game looks like. Can they play around older players? Can they deal with the physicality? Uh, Are they able to fit in or do they force the issue? I I like to see those things. To me, like you, you get a chance to chart these guys at a younger age. You feel more confident in their ultimate evaluation. You're not just going off of one year of them playing internationally you have an entire trajectory to go off of. So to me, it's, it's not that hard to scout international players, especially when you, the longer you do it, you can look at a league like the Adriatic League and say, hey, you know, the athletes in the Adriatic League always look more athletic because it's just not a very athletic league. So like a team of Wawu, looks like he's going to be a really good NBA athlete, gets to the NBA and he's just average. So I think you learn lessons the longer you do this and that just makes scouting international players easier. But when you look at high school players, they're always going to be a tricky eval if they don't get a chance to play college.
1: Yeah, evaluating high school players seems really difficult, especially because the the, the double draft is coming, right? 2021 is going to be the year that one of done is over?
0: I think it will be 2022, based on what I'm hearing.
1: So, I mean, that's going to be – first of all, that's huge for teams that have multiple first-round picks that year, like the Oklahoma City Thunder, like those, those – are super valuable. I mean, how do you even go about scouting a high school kid?
0: Well, it's hard. I mean, I just I just watch somebody who's a rising high school freshman, and you know, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, okay, he's six two, maybe. I'm hoping one day he's going to be six four, but you, so much of that is like banking on growth spurts, banking on these kids' bodies filling out, banking on them to work hard to address their weaknesses. And more often than not, those things don't happen. They don't grow those extra two to three inches. They don't change their body. They don't become a shooter over time. And so it's hard. Sometimes you're you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and the kid just remains like a slightly older version of the same player. Um, But then sometimes you you check back like six months later and you're like, oh, I thought this guy was a streaky shooter, and now he's creating his own shot at the dribble. Six months after that, now he's shooting over two people. Like, how did this happen so quickly? So I think the earlier you can see them, you just establish a baseline. And then if they improve from that and you like where the growth curve is heading, then that can be really exciting. But often the guys that are like, the, the top two, top three ranked guys, freshmen, and then by their junior year, they're like the 18th ranked guy, and then by their senior year, they're like the 23rd ranked guy. Those are the guys I'm more concerned about, the ones who kind of plateau early on and beat up on competition that hasn't developed as quickly as them. I mean, everybody knows the guy that they played middle school ball with in eighth grade and was really good, but then didn't even make varsity when they were in 10th or 11th grade. They hit their growth spurt early and just didn't, and everybody else caught up. That's to me, like the guys who are highly ranked when they're younger and don't get better. Those are the guys that you can easily write off as opposed to the guys that have really exciting growth curves and sometimes come out of nowhere and are late bloomers by senior year of high school. Talk
1: to me about projecting jump shots, because that to me seems like if you had the ability to to figure out one thing about a prospect, like, you know, all of these guys who are six, seven and good defenders, if everyone says, okay, they learn how to shoot threes, you know, they're a great NBA player. No, no NBA team could ever have enough 3 and D guys. How do you go about projecting... Jump shots, like for example, Kawhi Leonard. You know, he's the comp everyone's going to draw to because he wasn't a good shooter really in college, and then he learned how to become a really good shooter. What is it like projecting that out over you know a few years of an NBA career?
0: Well, I try not to use even use guys like Kawhi and you know Draymond as comparisons. I think you just go down. Now, and,
1: those are 99th percentile outcomes, but that's a comp everyone wants to make,
0: right? I mean, because because it's the it's the comp that works for the guy. You can't totally see how it works. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this guy's 6'7", and he's pudgy, but I I like him. He's smart. Maybe he'll be Draymond. Like, oh, this guy's got really long arms. He can't really shoot right now. Maybe he'll be Kawhi. Like, it's just not even worth using those names. The way I go about it is, you know, free throw percentage. What does that look like? What does their form look like? Uh, What's their touch look like? What do their misses look like? What do their makes look like? Like, the worst thing you can do is just watch a highlight reel of somebody just making shots. I like to see a guy's misses as well. Are they good misses? Are they bad misses? Are they consistent? What's consistent about his mechanics? Does he snap his wrist the same way every time? Does he snap his elbow the same way every time? I'm a big believer in consistency and touch. Like i often tell people in the Scout U class, I I sometimes I just want to hear it. Like I want to hear the sound of the make, the sound of the miss. And to me, like there's, there's a certain quality to that that I can't even describe, but you know when you hear it, that's a soft shot. That's a stiff shot that's a shot that sounds like it's going to ping off of rims all over the place. Um, You know, another thing you want to see is guys that are willing and guys that aren't in their own head about their shot. Like the guys that are willing to shoot. I have a a less of a concern than the guys that are terrified to shoot. And that sounds obvious, but like you look at a Ben Simmons, like Ben Simmons is afraid to shoot. Markel Fultz is afraid to shoot there. There's something going on in their head. That's preventing them from just letting it fly. And you watch them shoot when no one's on the court and it looks one way, and then you watch them shoot or not shoot in a game, and it looks different. You want to see consistency from the shot when no one's around to the shot in a game. It's easy to have your shot look one way when no one's around and you have the time to, to you know, get your form right. But then in the game, muscle memory kicks in, and you're back to whatever you were doing. So I want to see the guys that have the same shot when no one's around as the same shot when they're in the game. I want to see consistency in general. I want to see guys that are willing to shoot that are not in their own head. I want to see confidence the free throw line. There's a lot of things I look for, but to me, it's not just like one thing solves all. I don't think college three-point percentage is the ultimate indicator. I don't think free the percentage is the ultimate indicator, but these are all just little you know, things you throw into the pot, and you're hoping that the recipe ends up being an NBA three-point shooter.
1: It seems to me like what would be the biggest ingredient would be just being able to repeat the motion sort of in every single circumstance. So like your your 18 foot jump shot should look pretty similar to your 23 point jump shot. You shouldn't, or your 23 foot, like you you shouldn't have to be changing your motion based on how far the shot is, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about consistency. It's, you know, you don't want to have somebody who shoots like an inch off the ground from 18 feet, but then from the three point arc, they're they're flying all over the place. They're 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 drifting, they're, they're launching way too much, they're doing light kicks. That's the last thing you want to see. And the guys who are good shooters like that are the anomalies, and they're not guys that we would want people to emulate. So
1: Yeah, you're not showing your you're not showing your kids Sean Marion's jump shot and saying, Okay, I want you to do this.
0: Right. Or like Caleb Martin's jump shot and saying, Hey, go be go shoot like Caleb Martin um, you, you want consistency. You want as many things that are as classic as possible. Now people can have a high release point. They can have their guide hand on the side of the ball on top of the ball. You know, they, they can have their elbow a little bit out or maybe bend it back beyond, you know, to like a 45 degree angle. All these things can change slightly, but I just want it to be consistent. Like, I don't care if everybody has a 90 degree angle or a 45 degree angle, but if you do it consistently, to me, that's gonna inspire confidence.
1: All right, so let's get let's get into it now. Let's get to the bread and butter, the 2019 NBA draft class. Who do you like most, relative to the consensus, or even even relative to the draft? Like, who do you think was the was the biggest steal?
0: I think uh, getting Matisse Thibel where the Sixers got him, was a really good you know play. I, I thought it was great value. You could debate about what they gave up to get him. That's a different conversation. But in terms of where they got him, I actually had a lottery grade on Matisse Thibel. I think he's going to come into the NBA. He's going to be really switchable defensively. I think his jump shot is as big of a concern as people made it out to be. It was just like a talking point on his offense. Um, and I think he's going to fit in really, really well around more talented players, guys that can create shots for him. Whereas at Washington, he's playing alongside a guy like David Crisp, who is incredibly selfish and a shoot first, think later type of guy. And Jalen Noel, who is just a combo guard scorer. There's nobody really set him up. And I think in the NBA, you're gonna see that three point percentage rise. And you're hopefully gonna see him in time start putting the ball in the deck more. Um, I think he's gonna be a steal for for the, the Philadelphia 76ers.
1: All right. Now, now on the converse, uh, who what pick did you hate the most? What was the who did you like least relative to the consensus?
0: I thought Cam Johnson from UNC was drafted way too high. Um, now there's a lot of guys on my staff that like him, and when I polled the staff and said, You know, who do you think outside the lottery is going to end up being a rotation player for the longest amount of time? He was a very popular pick. People just thought, that guy's going to be in a rotation. But there's a big asterisk there. He's got to be healthy. He's someone that battled injuries for four years of college, played five years of college. And this is the only year this past season where he was ever fully healthy. He said it's the only time he could really, like, change directions. I have big concerns about somebody that just has a body that's predisposed to injury. And when he was injured, he looked like he couldn't even dunk a basketball. He looked like he couldn't defend anybody. He had a great year at UNC. The year type of year that makes you think, hey, maybe this guy could be like James Jones. The GM of the Phoenix Suns, James Jones, probably saw some of himself in Cam Johnson as he pulled the trigger and traded down to get a guy. I just thought it was way too high for someone that is one injury away from maybe never playing basketball again or always just being on the mend. Now, there's upside there. To, you know, if this, these injuries are behind him and he's only going to get healthier in an NBA training program, okay, like, I kind of get it. Maybe like the best is yet to come, but I just think he's someone that could look less athletic in the pros. The defense isn't going to translate as much. He's really just a shooter, and the margin for error is really razor thin to where if he's not a special shooter and if he gets hurt again, then that saps any of his athleticism. He could be on the outside looking in of a lot of rotations and just be floating around.
1: So take what I'm about to say with a, a big grain of salt, because I, I don't watch a ton of college basketball. I do watch a ton of pro basketball and sort of know what fits there. And I think the worst pick, what it's going to end up looking like the worst pick is going to be RJ Barrett. To me, he seems like a guy who fit really well in like 1998 in the NBA. And I just don't know how much of a of a role there is for a, you know, a high-volume shooting guard like that that doesn't project to be super efficient. Where are you at on R.J.?
0: Yeah, I mean, an- analytics guys hate R.J. Barrett. Um, they will talk your ear off about why this guy is going to be a bust. And to some extent, I get that. I mean, you could probably look at everybody on our staff and no one is going to aggressively go to bat for him. And yet he was the number three guy on our board. Maybe that's more of an indictment on the rest of the draft and the fact that there wasn't a ton of star power here. Especially in terms of guys with like squeaky clean background checks and red flag reports, Uh, RJ doesn't have any of those issues. Good kid, pro pro bloodlines. Steve Nash's godfather. You'd like to think he's got the the support system to realize his potential, but he's got a lot of bad habits. He gets tunnel vision a ton. He wants to you know be that scorer. He wants to be that alpha guy late in the game. I always thought, I often thought it was to the detriment of Duke this year. I just don't like being uber critical on guys that are as young as him and are as accomplished as him. He's also incredibly productive, not necessarily efficient. And some people will say, well, yeah, he was productive because of the volume, but he has been a winner at previous levels. Duke was by no means bad. Um, It's tough. Like, I don't love his games. I, I, I dislike way more than I like, but he's a guy that. You know, if he can become a shooter, if he can grow up a little bit in terms of his feel for the game, it's almost weird to say, but he's not even that polished. If he can become polished, I'm very curious what that ends up looking like. Maybe it's somebody in like the DeMar DeRozan wheelhouse. I don't know. Time will tell. Maybe he's just the next Tyreek Evans or the next Shabazz Muhammad. Those things are on the table too. But I think we got to give this kid time. We got to let him develop and see what he looks like when he's 22 years old and not, you know, 19 years old. And I think from then, We could say, okay, guys are this ilk we're going to start betting against. But I still think it's prematurely, even though he did look bad in summer league. And a lot of the things you may not have liked about him reared their head there. But he's a good kid. I think he's going to work hard. And I think he's going to try to evolve as a basketball player. And I'm actually curious that maybe on a team like New York, the Knicks, who have a lot of score-first guys, maybe that's actually going to be good for RJ to take on a little bit more of a playmaking role. Because there's just not enough balls to go around that team. And he might actually be the best playmaker if he's willing to play that role. I
1: actually think he could be a really good example of a second contract guy. So he might be miscast as uh, the top scorer on a good team. Like maybe the Knicks never just become that with him as their leading scorer. But I think he could be a great example of a guy who, okay, the Knicks, they don't exercise his option. He goes to another team and then all of a sudden, He's coming off the bench for the Hornets and scoring 18 points a game off the bench on like pretty respectable volume. Like that to me actually seems like a pretty realistic career path for him.
0: Yeah, I mean it's also possible that his rookie year is his best year, and then the Knicks get free agents next year, if if that happens. And and then we're looking at a guy that takes a dip and then he becomes available through through trade. And that's very like Tyreek Evans-ish. Um all those things are on the table. I just don't wanna kill a kid who's nineteen. Plays really hard, wants to win, is aggressive, and has the the kind of the background, the accomplishment, the resume that he has. It's easy to kill him for the things he can't do, but I think we always want we often want these players to be perfect. At pick number three in a draft, we wouldn't call a strong draft. You don't have to be perfect, and if he can make certain improvements, he can be a flawed scorer and still potentially be a top three guy in the region. It's not the the best case for a player. But, again, we're talking about the third pick in a draft. We're not talking about the first or second pick. And we're talking about a draft that everybody would agree was a weaker draft. Yeah,
1: I mean, this this draft just was not very deep with, you know, potential superstars. Really, there was Zion, and then I think Morant was kind of in a tier of his own. Outside of those two, who do you expect to have the most impactful rookie season well,
0: I think Darius Garland's going to get going to get a chance to produce on Cleveland alongside Colin Sexton. I think those two are going to be an interesting fit. Neither of them are like prototypical point guards, in my opinion. They're both kind of score first. Although Garland is more of a point guard than Sexton, I'm curious how they defend. Um, I actually think Kevin Porter Jr. is like the dark horse in that trio who they got later in the first. I think he end into being a steal for for Cleveland. Other guys, I think could produce. I think Brandon Clark's going to get a chance with Memphis. I know that they just re-signed Valanchunas, but he played really well in Summer League. He fits nicely alongside both Valanchunas and Jaron Jackson. I think he's going to get a shot to, to see the court a lot and produce and it wouldn't be shocking if he ends up being somebody that lands on the first team already.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that is pretty reasonable. One of the guys who I, I was hoping that Brandon Clark would go to a competitive team. I'm, I'm a Thunder fan. I was hoping that they were going to take him. They actually took him and then traded the pick. Is he someone that your guys ended up really liking?
0: He's a divisive player because, you know, a- analytics guys love him. You know, efficient, productive. Um, But then you go back and you watch what his jump shot looked like at San Jose State. It was like a travesty. It was horrible. Completely gross. And he he changes his mechanics and it became a better shot at Gonzaga, but he's still not really a three-point shooter. And he's also an older player that I often felt beat up on younger players. And I don't think people talked enough about how bad the West Coast Conference was. Outside of Gonzaga, sometimes St. Mary's and sometimes UIU and San Francisco had a decent season. The rest of that conference is a low-major conference, really bad competition. And I don't think Gonzaga faced a lot of tough competition outside of non-conference play and the postseason play. Brandon Clark could have had a good season elsewhere, but I'd like to see him go up against NBA players on a night basis and see, is he a four, is he a five? How does he defend? What's he going to be like when it's not just athleticism that's going to give him that edge and a motor? Maybe he's just Larry Nance. Maybe he's Tristan Thompson. Maybe he's Trevor Booker. I'm not sure. I think the upside is ultimately like, if you really, really believe in him, I think the upside is like a Kenyon Martin type. I'm just not sure that he's got the chops to be the next Kmart. And I think Kmart's another guy that's a really tough comparison. Yeah.
1: I I mean, I think most of that is probably fair. And I think that where some of the analytics stuff has the ability to grow is in figuring out how to translate guys from bad conferences.
0: For sure. And trying to like level the playing field and trying to make all the stats uniform of, you know, okay, well, Duke played these, this type of guys in the top 100 in terms of uh, strength of schedule and talent and Gonzaga played these, these amount of guys in the bottom 100. How do we kind of
1: level? So one, one thing I've just always been curious about is second round draft picks, because sort of from my understanding, a lot of what happens in the second round versus kind of undrafted free agency or late in the first round comes from agents. They just sort of have a massive hand and whether the players are willing to take, you know, the non-guaranteed deals or the two-way deals, what insight do you have on, uh, on how that still works?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a part of it. Um, the later you get into the draft, the more that a, pl- a player might just say, Hey, I, I don't want to be drafted. Now a team could still say, that's cool. We're going to draft you anyways. Um, but I think often that's just like a respect and trying to maintain relationships with the agents to not just tell an agent, we're going to do it anyways. We don't care how upset your player is going to be. And now granted, that team's going to still have time to win the player over. We're not talking about like a Paul George, Kawhi Leonard situation where you have to convince a superstar to stay in your city. You're talking about a kid that wants to get drafted, got drafted, and now you're trying to prove to the kid, hey, there's a chance for you here to become a part of our program. But still, you're seeing more and more guys say, I would rather test the undrafted route pick my own team, pick a, you know, a place where I want to live. I see a road to playing time. Uh, My agent trusts the the front office. I like the coach, et cetera. And that's happening more and more. And we'll ultimately see how that ages. I've just been on the record as saying, I think it's, it's just, it's unsettling as an evaluator and as a purist to not see the 60 best guys get drafted, to see guys get drafted that have no business being drafted, aren't NBA players right now but are getting drafted more because they have no leverage and they're willing to let a team say, you're going to be a two-way from jump. Are you okay with that? And then they'll say, fine, because they just want to get drafted. On some level, I like the creativity of that, although I think there are other ways we can take that creativity. I'm still just not a fan of the best 60 players not being the 60 players that get drafted. Yeah,
1: I mean, and, and it, it is, I'm sure it's a bummer for a lot of the guys who would like to get drafted but don't have super powerful agents or whatever. Like it does feel from the outside. It does. just.
0: Yeah. I mean, you look like there are things you can do, right? You could say, Hey, I'd be willing to play in the G league for a year. I'd be willing to go play overseas for a year. Like all these things are on the table. And that's about, you know, a team being creative, the agent being creative and the player being open-minded. And and there's nothing wrong with these kids saying like a Lugan Stort saying, you know what? don't draft me at this point. I'd rather go undrafted and find a team that I want to play for. And that's going to give me plenty You know, more power to you. Like the, there's nothing wrong with, with the, a player exercising his power. Um, I just think there's a really easy way to solve all this more roster spots. And if we have more roster spots, then we're going to come back to a place where the best players are getting drafted and teams aren't sweating the, the roster spot and giving it away to a rookie because If the best 60 players aren't getting drafted, then we're not really doing what the draft was set out to accomplish, which is bring in the best 60 players. And if all we have to do is increase the roster spot, maybe make that another two-way, maybe find a way to entice players to go into the G League, whatever you're going to do that's going to prevent players from going to Australia, Like I'm all for it if it brings more players into the NBA infrastructure and program right away the guys that deserve
1: or have rookie salaries or two way salaries count a different way against the salary cap, like have a salary cap for two way players or include G league salaries in the big team salary cap. Like there, there are creative solutions to this problem. It seems.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess that there are numerous solutions to this problem question is going to be, who's going to care to fix it? Are the veteran players who are going to be negotiating the next CBA? Do they care? If the 60 best players are getting drafted, do they care to have another rookie on the team? Probably not. Uh, do the teams care, or are the teams more concerned with player movement and the, trying to keep your homegrown talent in your program for longer? I don't know how much of an issue this is for teams and for players. So we'll see You know who ultimately says – This is what I want to fight for, and I want to see this in the next CBA. So
1: while we're on the subject of second-round draft picks, there was one guy who I did feel strongly about coming out of college, and that was Carson Edwards. I've just seen so many guys like him be successful in the NBA, even on the periphery, because of his ability to shoot. He can shoot contested jumpers. He can create his own shots. Uh, I was just wondering if your guys' player evaluation landed on the same lines as mine.
0: Well, I had him as an early second rounder. Um, Some of our staff had him as a late first. Uh, The biggest thing for me is I am just hesitant in embracing smaller guards. Like anybody that's about six foot or smaller, my ears perk up and I I get a little bit nervous. I I get a little bit nervous that it's going to be really difficult for their game to trend. Now, for every Carson Edwards, there might be a guy like an Isaiah Thomas or a Patty Mills or a J.J. Barea. But there's plenty of guys who, you know, one thing doesn't go their way and they find themselves on the outside looking in, like a Pierre Jackson or a Kay Felder or a Tyler Ulis. And I just think it's really, really tough to make it at that size in the NBA. And I think a guy like Carson Edwards built his college career on making difficult shots. Those shots will get tougher in the league. The amount of space he's going to have to operate will get smaller. I don't think he's somebody that's great at creating space As is, I think he's more reliant on bump-offs and push-offs, and he's got his spots that he's super confident in, and he doesn't need a ton of space. But in NBA, the length, the athleticism, the defense, it's all going to get tougher to go up against. And this isn't somebody that I think can really play point guard either. He's really the size of a point guard, a small point guard, yet he operates like a shooting guard. The only thing I would really be confident in is I think he's going to defend better than people give him credit for when he's got less usage on his plate. Um, and certainly I think Boston's going to say, Hey, can we turn this guy into the next Isaiah Thomas? But I think it's going to be really tough. I don't think he's got that level of junk, that level of slipperiness. And he's not like cat, like quick, like a young Berea. Um, I I think it's going to be tough. I think his, he's got a chance. That's why I had him where I had him. If I didn't really like him, I wouldn't have had him draftable. Uh, but there's a chance he's just a better version of Isaiah Cannon, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but I don't know how exciting an NBA player that is either.
1: Yeah, he's like a very specific fit. Right? I, you know, I don't think he's Steph Curry or whatever, but I do. I just thought it was interesting, one, that he slipped to the second round, and then two, that it, a smart team like Boston who knows what they're doing with a lot of these prospects took him. But the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, of course, player comps, because player comps are something that everyone loves. Like when you're ingesting NBA draft coverage, you love to hear the player comps. And the the one guy that really just sort of made me kind of laugh at the whole thing was uh was Rui, the the Hachimura, the the wing that the Wizards took. And of course, uh he got comped on the broadcast to Kawhi Leonard. And obviously that's an insane comparison. But how do you guys do comps for
0: well, I first of all I think I don't think coming up with comps is easy. Um, it's something that I force everybody on our staff to do, even if they're not good at it, because I think the more you do it and the more you're told, no, that comp doesn't work, then hopefully you start inching towards comps that do work. And the longer you scout, the more you develop a Rolodex of names for guys that didn't just make it, but guys that also failed. Because if all we do is compare guys to superstars, then we're, we're not going to hit on comps very often, especially if there's about one to two superstars max per draft. So now you're giving these players really no shot at a fair comparison. Comps are hard. I try to really keep the height similar, the height and weight, hopefully the body type, the length, as, as close as comparable as possible. Um, I also want to look at the things that this guy, this guy did in college and what might compare as opposed to trying to say Rui compared to you know, 10th year in the league, player X. I don't think that that's as easy of a comp. I like to look at what was this guy like in college, what was he like in high school? What was he like in this early part of his career? And not just what am I comparing him to in terms of that player in his current iteration in the NBA? So I look at their whole career. I try to take as much into account as possible. I try to throw out as many comps as possible. I would look at it as like a family tree. Like, what does Rui's family tree look like? What does you know, Carson Edwards' family tree look like? Well, there's certainly an Isaiah Thomas in that family tree. There's an Isaiah Cannon in that family tree. Uh, I don't know if like Yogi Farrell belongs on it, but maybe Frank Mason does, you know, you can throw in some names on there and then see how high up that tree they can climb. Uh, You could also call it like a spectrum. Like this is the high end. This is the low end of their outcomes, but I think comps can be very helpful, not just for how a player can make it, but why a player can't like Mike Dom, who was a very productive player at South Dakota state. Uh, Everybody wants to know like, well, what could his comparison be? could he make it reminded me so much of Luke Harangote. And that's a guy that didn't make it really productive college player. But to me, I see that and I see a lot of comparisons and then it's easy to kind of convince yourself. Yeah. Mike Dom is not an NBA player because Luke Harangote is probably better. And this kid isn't as good. So I think comps of guys that don't make it can be just as helpful as comps for guys that do make it. And we can't just use all-star superstar comps. There's plenty of names to work with. in the
1: middle. Yeah. I think that's probably a pretty reasonable way to uh to approach it so uh there there we go that's uh tell people about uh your your podcast and how if they're interested how they could uh register for scout you
0: yeah so uh scout you actually kicks off this wednesday uh july 17th it's just orientation so if for whatever reason you don't get in by Wednesday you can still sign up by next week and we'll just catch up on what you missed before the next class. It's an online class we have a few spots remaining uh, all you got to do is email scoutu at evhoops.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Alon where I've been posting information about it. It's not too late to sign up. And if you reference this podcast, uh, you can use the promo code Davis and you'll save my. Wow, 100. there
1: we go. So official, my man.
0: Yeah. And if you do that, we'll offer a $100 discount.
1: Dope. All right. Well, everyone, I, I hope that after listening to this podcast, you guys are pretty interested and uh, would be willing to, to sign up for the guy. I'm, I'm pretty interested. I might, I might give it a look. This was great. Thanks so much for your time. Man.
0: Thanks for having me.